my chosen, listen to him. When that voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one of the things they had seen. And on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great cloud met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. And suddenly a spirit seized him, and all at once he shrieked. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. The word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. That makes it very easy. I think you'll not forget. Friends, will you pray with me? Loving and wondrous God, this morning I pray that you once again let the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of our hearts be acceptable. In your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer, open our ears to hear this word and know your voice, just like those disciples. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our understandings in unimaginable ways so that we may continue to serve you today, now, and in the future. Amen. Amen. Okay. So this text is hard for me every year. Part of me is still Baptist in the words liturgy and lectionary were not things I grew up with. They just weren't, right? Eschatological, Eucharistic, praxis. I forgot who asked me what that word meant the first time I preached here. I didn't know those words before divinity school. I dated a pastor for a little bit. So while I knew there was a thing as a liturgical calendar, I didn't know that there were years A, B, and C, or that Vanderbilt would become my resource. They have a calendar you can click on it. It tells you what to preach. <laughs> or that it keeps us kind of in this rhythm of doing church, and it's really helpful. And as a young Baptist camp kid, I didn't hear of this Sunday's topic, Transfiguration Sunday. So if you're like me, this is new, and that's okay, and it makes me feel a little bit better, because this is only the third or fourth time I've preached on this topic. And it's a beautiful thing to come with eyes that are fresh and an open mind. So with all that being said, let's jump right in. Here's the big picture of what Transfiguration Sunday and where we're situated this week in the lectionary text. This is the last week of the season of Epiphany. Lent begins next week, this week, kind of on Wednesday. For Luke, the transfiguration is in many ways the mother of all stories. Epiphany means showing forth, since it reveals Jesus as a prophet par excellence, and above all is God's chosen and God's beloved child. If we read the verses preceding,
reading this passage, Jesus has just articulated what is arguably his most disturbing, difficult teaching of all. That he must suffer, die, and rise again. Now for the disciples, they kind of just hear the suffer and die part, right? <laughs> the rise again part, for them, I mean, they're, the Greek mythological pieces are, for them, they're Hellenistic. So they, they get all of that, but they hear the die and suffer. And he is their friend and their teacher. And that anyone who wishes to follow him must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That's from Luke 9, 23. The transfiguration light then acts as a kind of reassurance for Peter, John, and James. And for us, too, because we're reading it kind of after the fact, right? It's as if Luke is saying, we're now making the turn towards Golgotha, and that means descending into the valley of the shadow of death. So Luke is saying, fear not, right? Keep this astonishing, mysterious mountaintop story in mind as we go. Carry it like a torch, for it can help show the way. Because it gives us a glimpse of where we're headed. Because Moses and Elijah are in heaven, right? I think I had a discussion with Pam earlier in the week about Moses being in heaven with God. Which kind of reinforced this story. So by Luke's day, many Jews considered Elijah to be this eschatological death. That's what eschatological means. This death figure whose return would signal the end of an age. So in this sense, Elijah was among the prestigious of prophets. So that's why when they see him, they're like, oh, something's happening here. And Moses, of course, was thought to be the author of the Torah. So together then with Moses and Elijah, they personified the law and the prophets. So the sacred scripture of tradition, the risen Jesus will later interpret for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So for those of you or us, including me, that are still mystified, I want to define a couple terms here. This is the boring part if you don't want to listen, that's cool. <laughs> One, transfiguration. We talked about that in the children's sermon. I always kind of want to lead us in here. Some of us need a baby sermon to get us in. Need one of them. <laughs> Webster's defines it as a complete transformation or change of appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. I think we got that, right? He, he had this heavenly state. His clothes even glowed, right? He was glistening. Or B, Christ's appearance in radiant glory in front of three of his disciples. Even Webster's defines it that way. And eschatological, I kind of love that word, it kind of just rolls off our tongues. Meaning, relating to death, judgment, or the final destiny of soul and humankind. Do those definitions help? Maybe, maybe not. Above, Elijah and Moses are dead biblical characters that are brought back to be in context with Jesus. They're important because of the Hebrew conversation and the disciples knew those stories well. So Jesus read from Isaiah. And do you remember my first time here where Jesus read from Isaiah and was chased out of his home church? This story kind of continues for Jesus. He's always going to read through those sermons or those Hebrew texts. So he's going to be in conversation with those historical figures and prophets. 
So Moses was also a transfigured person from his story, right? He glowed, his face glowed. So it was helpful when Jesus is transfigured to have a Hebrew person, prophet, story who was transfigured to make it believable. So that gave him kind of street cred, as my daughter would say. <laughs> so let's take a closer look at the scripture. The beauty of the lectionary is how these two texts were like given to me. They're handed to me this week, right? The Moses story from Exodus and his transformation fits right in line with the Jesus story from Luke. <coughs> we wonder, this thing is created in a way, it kind of creates this tapestry. These two stories are woven together with an intricate narrative. Ryan's like, you're using two scriptures? I was like, I sure am. <laughs> they're unique to both Moses as an individual and Jesus as an individual, but yet they're intrinsically connected, almost divinely so, so that the Jesus story makes it prophetic. In Luke, Jesus retreats into the mountains alone to pray. But this time, he invites Peter, John, and James as if it's one of the first Christian worship services, as if he has something to show them. His shining face recalls Moses's radiance when he descended from Sinai. And this is the episode from this week's reading in Exodus. And Jesus's shining garments anticipate the heavenly white robes in the empty tube to come. So it's like foreshadowing, right? So it precedes that story. Then we have a current, current, it's not our current, but it's current in Luke. A current story, and then it foreshadows the next story of the resurrection. It's really beautiful if you look at it. You know, if we can look at it that way. So finally, the story's cloud and divine voice also evoke the portrait of God's presence in Exodus 24. In this way, Luke casts this mountaintop encounter with God in terms of Israel's classic paradigm, thus positioning his gospel within the broad sweep of salvation in history. So what happens up there, it's beyond explanation, of course, but it's at the heart of a mysterious heavenly realm, and indeed of the world to come. Time and space seem to collapse. The world becomes incandescent. And Jesus is suddenly engaging Israel's two most prestigious characters in a collegial conversation. We don't know what they were really talking about. We don't get, we don't get that close of a glimpse. What they're talking about is telling. The Greek word the NRV translate is departure or exodus, a likely reference to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, much like Elijah. And at the same time, to the ancient idea of a new exodus modeled on deliverance from Egypt. That's kind of cool, right? So imagine as we plan our promised land, our vision as a church for the future, much like Jesus was, if Moses, Elijah, Ruth, or Sarah showed up and started talking with us about our ministry here, how would onlookers, fellow disciples, feel about the sight they were beholding? That is what Peter, John, James, was, they witnessed Jesus with ancestors of their faith. Now, I haven't been here long enough, but what if some of your former ancestors showed up that are gone, right? What if they showed up to vision plan with you? 
That's like what was happening there. So we all know this guy, Peter, right? He stammers a suggestion. I kind of alluded to this. This is going to be part of this. Shall we build you three tents? It's a bumbling, endearing proposal, if a bit tone deaf and presumptuous, after all. If these three great prophets wanted a shelter, they could have made arrangements. After all, they were bouncing back and forth from heavenly realms. Is Peter thinking of the Greek custom of building a shrine on the site for God's <clears throat> appearance? Or the festival of booths commemorating the Exodus? Is he trying to corral the astounding wonder into something more manageable, more domesticated? Or is he simply terrified, grasping for something to offer? I just can't imagine, like, I mean, I'm trying to think of someone I love or someone from history. So, like, Maya Angelou comes back. I mean, I, I went to Winston-Salem, and she had passed away, like, two weeks before we moved there for divinity school. And all of a sudden, she shows up five, ten years later, and I'm like, can I build you a tent? <laughs> and I'm just like, Peter, like, I'm reading this text, and I was like, why does he want to build it? But it's like, you're in that moment, and what else can you offer? And every commentator that I read, they're like, what is he doing? But he just, he doesn't have anything else to offer. And so the closest approximation they're thinking is maybe that he was trying to build them a shrine. But they're really, they just think he was so terrified. He didn't know what else to do. But it was really a bumbling proposal, right? He knows that Moses and Elijah are not sticking around. And in that moment, he probably realizes Jesus isn't either. So emanating from a cloud, God voice reprises the message from Jesus' baptism. It's almost word for word, right? It may be that only Jesus hears that voice, but God says, you are my son. Whereas here, the announcement is addressed to all. At any rate, with Jesus' identity confirmed in a spectacle and spectacular fashion, the disciples are stunned into silence. That tip talk, it stops. For Luke, true messiahship comes not with trumpets and chariots, but in a deeply hidden form of a suffering servant and into the clear resurrection and ascension. And that is the ultimate epiphany. So in that moment, those three disciples are stunned into silence that their friend, their teacher, and their Messiah will suffer and die soon, whatever that means. So the transfiguration ends as abruptly as it began. The two older figures vanish suddenly. We don't really know how that works, but they're gone, right? And the disciples find themselves with Jesus alone. Luke's message here isn't that Jesus somehow eclipses or supersedes Moses and Elijah, but he stands with them in radical, profound kinship and continuity with them, both carrying on and culminating their work. <coughs> so finally, just as in this week's reading from Exodus, where Moses descends from the mountaintop and teaches the Israelites, Jesus descends and continues <coughs> to teach his struggling disciples. And what does he do? Someone's going to answer. What does he do when he descends? Huh? What's he do? He heals. He keeps on working. Nothing stops. 
nothing changes for Jesus. I mean, he's kind of annoyed with the guy, right? Why do I got to keep telling you this is what we do? He's annoyed, but he keeps on working. Nothing changes for him because he wasn't enlightened. Those three that were trying to build a tent, they were enlightened. Jesus knew the story already. That transformation, that transfiguration, well, not that one. That transfiguration was not for Jesus. The transfiguration was for Peter, James, and John. Which is what is the transfiguration for the most part is for those around us, right? It's not for the one who is already enlightened. Luke's message is clear. Jesus has come to heal and to liberate. He is a prophet of the highest caliber like Elijah. And accordingly, his arrival signals the dawn of a new era, a new ju jubilee. And by jubilee, they mean like a freeing and a new exodus. So the question here is to heal from what? Our goal, or at least mine during this preaching moment, is to be thought-provoking or to offer an actionable moment, right? We read this ancient text because we believe that it has some contemporary application, right? I mean, if not, what are we doing here on Sunday mornings? So this week, I've been moved to tears nearly for a couple things. One, I got the pleasure of spending my Monday with the family that I really adore. And I saw God in a waiting room and all the ancestors holding a beloved family amidst the heaviness. Now, how many of us have sat with all that this week and in the past few months? So for healing to occur, we need to sit with one another and help one another heal in physical and emotional healing. So that's one thing. And there are so many opportunities in this congregation and in our community to do that. So Jesus went and continued the work of healing, physical healing, emotional healing. And that takes many forms. Two, there is a heaviness for many of us in the pastorate this week. Some of you may be paying attention to the news about what's happening in the United Methodist Church. I'm not going to delve too deeply into all of that. But I'm just going to say I have many friends that are unable to preach, to serve, or be fully recognized in their denomination because of their gender, sexual orientation, or other things. And as someone who has seen the church deny opportunities to women, people of color, and others, kind of hurts a little, and I'm proud to be part of a denomination that accepts me fully for who I am. And as a mother of someone who's on the autism spectrum, which is a disability, I hope that this church continues to be a place that accepts us for all of who we are fully. And here is a place where all really means all. This table, this building, this pulpit is a place where we are all accepted for who we are. So finally, I think this text calls us to vision. And in my office, I've had people kind of come in throughout the week, which I kind of love. I kind of love these little brief interruptions. <coughs> and I love that you all are taking it upon yourself to have these little conversations with me. And I think that's what the epiphany is all about. It's about these glimpses, because we never get the full vision, right? 
Jesus and God are kind of the ones that have the full vision. We just get glimpses. We are amidst our own transfiguration here at this church. Jesus is certainly in our midst. We are at places we are going so holy we might want to cover our faces like Moses. Have we recognized the holy spaces and places and conversations and moments? I think I have or I try. Sometimes they take my breath away. Sometimes they are so, so simple. The birds were chirping yesterday like it was spring. I think they were real confused. <laughs> but it was a holy moment, at least for them. But for me to hear those birds, were it was holy. Last Wednesday, when little Glory climbed up in my lap to finish his pizza, because he barely talked to me at the beginning of youth group, it was a holy moment. When a congregant told me about a broken marriage that has been healed through God and this church, that vulnerability was holy. The energy in our elders meeting last week, the authentic way that you all shared with me, it was holy. Those sacred moments, breathe them in because so much of our time is spent in disharmony because that world invites us to be in disharmony. Our goal needs to be to find those moments of sacredness, of holiness, to plant our feet in it. And when we have a second of bliss, of peace, I think we need to recognize it, to take note of the glow of transfiguration. And I think as part of that, we need to notice when we have been excluded and when we have excluded others. <coughs> And we need to note where God is calling us to invite healing. Because as certain as Jesus said, death will come, his and ours, so will the moment of transfiguration. And Barbara Brown Taylor calls that the bright cloud of unknowing. And it is our job to lean into that, to lean into healing and mystery and sacredness. And that, I think, is what transfiguration is all about. Amen. Amen.